This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. All right, let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Heavenly Father, help us to help and guide our minds that we may come to understand the proof that St. Thomas has so that we may see you more clearly and love you with all our hearts. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as uh, Brother John was opening the windows, I noticed there's a reflection coming in my direction, so I'm hoping it'll kind of like shine right there. It'll give me a bit of its mystic glow, we might say. Well, thank you for coming this evening. I'm glad that you're here, and this is, I think, the kickoff for the Thomistic Institute here at Oxford this, this term. So we, I hope that you can join us uh, going forward, but thank you for being here this evening. And tonight, I will be lecturing on the fourth of St. Thomas's famous five ways proving the existence of God. Now, this is admittedly a difficult task. And what makes this task particularly difficult is that it is probably the argument most distasteful to modern sensibilities and resistant to friendly contemporary analysis. Even a scholar as friendly to Thomas Aquinas as Peter Geech had the following to say about the fourth way. He writes, the statement of the fourth way, in scare quotes there, in the Summa Theologica is odd and obscure to the modern reader. It involves inter alia an odd notion of degrees of truth, not a la Bradley, but apparently on the score that if one lie is bigger, is a bigger lie than another, the truth opposed to one is a bigger truth than the truth opposed to the other. I can make no use of this idea and will rather show how Aquinas might argue from degrees of essay and of goodness which also he, he here alludes to. I am not confident that this gives an historically correct exposition of the fourth way, a proof which I sometimes suspect of being one of the indefensible remnants of Platonism in Aquinas's thought. But at least the argument I shall give can be paralleled in many parts of Aquinas's writings. So that's Peter Geech's excuse for explaining the fourth way by not explaining it. <clears throat> And he had a particular grace of being willing to articulate the thoughts of, that many academic friends of Thomas Aquinas were unwilling to articulate. Because there are, of course, many, many Thomists who, when we get to this in our own classes, say, and then there's the fourth way, and it kind of goes like this, and now we're going to move on to the fifth way. <laughs> and I admit, I used to do that myself until I had to give this talk for the first time at its Mystic Institute event and decided to actually put my mind to it to try to figure out what it meant. And so this is the fruit of that reflection. So another gift of the Thomistic Institute to you all. Now, while the statements of Peter Geech are understandable, I think they're based on an interpretation of the argument of the fourth way that is faulty. And if we look at the argument of the fourth way carefully, we will see not only why it is interesting, but why it is in fact an extremely plausible argument and one that is easier to accept, even to the modern mind, than a first glance might imply. So my goal tonight is to make this argument comprehensible to you. 
I don't have time to put to rest all possible questions, of course. What can one do in just an hour, after all? But I do hope to show you that once we understand the reasoning here, we will see that the claims of St. Thomas, that the claims that St. Thomas is making are at, le at the very least plausible and worthy of our consideration, just as the other ways, other five ways are. And so first, let's just review the text of the argument here on the first page of your handout. I've given you both the Benzinger English translation as well as the uh, Leonine, or actually I think this is the Marietti uh, edition, the Latin from the Marietti edition. And so the English translation goes like this. The, for <clears throat> the fourth way is taken from the gradations to be found in things. Among beings, there are some more and some less good, true, noble, and the like. But more and less are predicated of different things, according as they resemble in their different ways something which is the maximum. As a thing is said to be hotter, according as, as it more nearly resembles that which is hottest. So that there is something which is truest, something best, something noblest, and consequently something which is uttermost being. For those things that are greatest in truth are greatest in being, as it is written in Metaphysics Book 2. Now the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus, as fire, which is the maximum heat, is the cause of all hot things. Therefore, there must be something which is to all beings the cause of their being, goodness, and every other perfection. In this we call God. And so that's the basis of the argument. Now, if you turn to page two of the handout, I've given you a reconstruction of the argument that I think captures the flow of the reasoning a little bit more clearly than just the bald text that we have here. So I have it in, of course, presented to you here in seven easy steps. So the first one says that if some property is found to exist in different things in greater or lesser degree, then there must be some maximal degree of that property. This is coming from Aristotelian physics. Premise two, properties of good, true, noble, etc., are all found in different things to a greater or lesser degree. And this is supposed to be an intuitive premise. And we get, then he concludes, therefore the properties of being good, true, noble, etc., must be found to a maximal degree. If there is something that is maximally true, then there is something that is maximally being. And this is coming from his reading of Metaphysics Book 2. Therefore, there is something that is maximally being. Each maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus. Therefore, the maximum being is the cause of all beings. And of course, St. Thomas then concludes, this is what all people call God. Now, I think that this reconstruction is a fairly accurate representation of the flow of the argument, and it's, it helps us to identify the kind of four principal moves that Aquinas makes and that we need to kind of look at more clearly. And these are the premises one, two, four, and six. And premises four and six in particular are the ones that most people find difficult to swallow. But to make sense of them, I think it's important that we spend actually most of our time talking about why we should accept premise one and premise two as true. Because if we really understand what he means in these premises, then the others will actually follow fairly quickly. All right, so premise one, 
says, just to review, if some property is found to exist in different things in greater or lesser degree, then there must be some maximal degree of that property. Well, this is not a crazy premise to start with. We might be forgiven for thinking that it's at least a bit dubious. Why should we think that some property is instantiated that when some property is instantiated by degree, that there must be some maximal instantiation of that property? Well, Aquinas is taking this premise actually from the Aristotelian notion that degree of about degrees of more or less. And we see this in a couple different places. First in the categories, chapter six. And this is the first quote on the text page, the third page here, where Aristotle discusses the category of quantity. And it seems that this would be the ideal place to discuss more and less, since quantitative comparisons seems to be the, seem to be the intuitive way to talk about degrees of more and less. But in an interesting observation, of course, Aristotle insists that degrees of more and less, large and small, and things like that, are not to be understood in the category of quantity. Rather, they're understood as coming from the category of relation. And so Aristotle writes, and this is the direct quote from your handout, but might someone say that many is contrary to few or large to small? None of these, however, is a quantity. They are relatives. For nothing is called large or small just in itself, but by reference to something else. For example, a mountain is called small, yet a grain of millet large, because one is larger than other things of its kind, while the other is smaller than other things of its kind. <clears throat> so this remark of Aristotle is, I think, rather insightful and tends to, and seems to be correct. After all, we do when we were when we refer to terms such as more or less, large and small, they are grammatically referred to as comparative terms, right? And that they only have meaning when you are comparing two different things in a relation using some sort of standard of measurement or some common genus. <clears throat> okay, you might be thinking, so what? How does classifying degrees of instantiation within the category of relation help with understanding this premise of the fourth way? Well, it helps in this way. Relations always require at least two things, as I've said. So if something has a property to a degree, we can only determine the degree of instantiation in relation to some other thing. And what is more, Aristotle, in his discussion of relations in the categories, ends up concluding that relations of more and less are determined by what he calls contraries. And this is important, I think, for the understanding of the fourth way. It's a key move because this is essentially Aristotle pointing out that the notion of contraries or contrariety is essential for understanding degrees of more and less. And he elaborates on this in several places in the corpus, but especially in book one of the physics and in book iota of the metaphysics. And that there, the notion and the development of contraries are, um, can help us to understand the types of things that Aquinas brings into the argument in the fourth way. Because Aristotle argues in physics book one, chapters five through seven, and in metaphysics book iota in several different places, in chapters one through four, and also in chapter seven, we see bits of this. He's talking about contraries. He says that contraries are fundamentally a relation 
between a, quote, having property, simply, and a privation of that property, simply. So properties, right, and these are what we call extremes. There's the total having of a property and the total absence of that property. And then there are intermediates. And the intermediates, which become, which exist kind of in between the total having of this or property and the total privation of this property, the intermediates are more or less like the having property. And so, um, um, and so that, and so that's an important feature of an Aristotelian notion of how degrees come about. They're degrees of a property that exists between its total presence and its total absence, and they are more and less in relationship to these two extremes. Now, I do not have time tonight to go into the intricacies of this argument. But if it is the case, at least, that all instances of degree fall upon a spectrum of having, totally having, or totally not having a particular property, then premise one in this argument is actually uncontroversially true for an Aristotelian. Because if some property does come in degrees, then it must be in degrees that are related to some extreme maximum property. That Aquinas is, in fact, presuming this feature of Aristotelian philosophy with respect to more and less is seen in other parts of his works. And I have given you here a quote number two from the Questiones de Potencia. Um, oh, and I see that uh, spell check has foiled me on the uh, quotation there. I beg your pardon. I'll have to correct that for future ones. Anyway, um, so he, there he says something that's very similar to what we see in the fourth way. He writes, the, and he's here talking again about, um, about degrees of more and less. And so he says, the second argument is that whenever something is found to be in several things by participation in various degrees, it must be derived by those in which it exists imperfectly from, from that one in which it exists most perfectly. Because where there are positive degrees of a thing so that we ascribe it to this one more and to that one less, this is in reference to one thing to which they approach, one nearer than another, one nearer than another. For if each one were of itself competent to have it, there would be no reason why one should have it more than another. Thus fire, note the similar usage, it's a similar example. Thus fire, which is the extreme of heat, is the cause of heat in all things hot. Now there is one being most perfect and most true, which follows from the fact that there is a mover altogether immovable and absolutely perfect, as philosophers have proved. Consequently, all other less perfect beings must need derived being therefrom. This is the argument of the philosopher in Metaphysics, Book 2. Now, obviously, you can see a lot of similarities in this argument uh, from the De Potentia to the argument of the fourth way, including the reference to the second book of the metaphysics. And there's probably a lot to say on that. But for now, just note, right, that Aquinas seems to have that degree, that notion of degrees of more and less in relationship to the total having of something in that the total having and the total absence then creates the extremes in which you can have degrees of more or less. 
Now, before moving on, I want to make one more observation here. And this is regarding what St. Thomas means by a maximum, or having property completely. We must resist thinking of the maximum here in terms of numeric value, as if there were like a highest number or amount of something, and that's what the maximum is going to be. Um, while this is true in some cases, this is definitely not true what, for what Aquinas means here. Because here, what he means by degrees of more or less are certain qualifications, certain lessening of a particular property. And that the maximum is just a purely unqualified property. And quite often the example that's used in Aristotle, and Aquinas follows him in this respect, is using the notion of color. So in, in the way that colors work for Aristotle, there are two extremes. There are white, there's white, and there's black, and there's everything in between. And when most people look at this, they say, aren't those just shades of gray in between? But colors are not just mixtures of white and black for Aristotle. What Aristotle says in Metaphysics Book 10, Chapter 7, is that an intermediate is that into which you have to change to move from one extreme to another. And he explicitly uses this terminology with re reference to color. And so to move from white to black, you have to first change into yellow, red, blue, and then and then into, and then usually has gray or green. There's some different colors, but they're generally moving towards a darker value until you get black. And what he says here is that to enhance this change, you have to add a new property. So that this adding of the new property to get, say, the color yellow is going to be less bright than white, but more dark than black. And what this tells us is that colors are not just a mixture of white and black, but that they're really kind of arranged along a spectrum of what many color theorists today will call value, which is the darkness or the brightness of a particular color. And so that colors do fall along the value scale, no matter what color they are. And so that, and that is describing the, the, the amount of share they have in brightness or whiteness. And so I think that this is what uh, what Aristotle and Aquinas mean by a intermediate, and that the extreme end of this, of whiteness, is just pure bright shininess without any sort of color mixture or pigment in it, right? The blindingness of the sun as it comes into your eyes. Aristotle refers to whiteness and defines it as a kind of piercing of the eye. It's a very weird part of the um, part of his theory. I, I had a hard time trying to understand this in my dissertation, but he tries to, is, he calls it as a pure piercing of the eye, whereas there's a dampening effect by darkness or a non-piercing character. And so white is just this maximum brightness, this maximum piercing uh, of whiteness, and that all colors are some sort of more or less uh, degree of this piercing quality of, white, of whiteness. And so this is what, then this whiteness is kind of like the maximum that we're looking for here. Something that is a particular property in an unqualified, unmitigated sense. With that, I think then we can see why Aquinas thinks that this statement is not only plausible, but un uncontroversial, in his, in, in, certainly in his milieu since it is dependent upon a plausible and fairly sophisticated argument from Aristotle on what makes something more or less. 
And there are some objections that can be brought against this view from a contemporary standpoint, but I think they can all actually be answered. But answering those questions, of course, is for another time. I know, I know. See, this is why you need to invite me back to talk about this. I can't let all of my secrets out now. So, so we're going to move on to premise two. So premise two states the following. Properties of being good, true, noble, etc., are all found in different, in different things to a greater or lesser degree. So now St. Thomas definitely thinks that this premise is intuitive. And he's right to think that. Most people who have problems with the fourth way do not have problems with this particular premise, because it seems to be the case that some things are, in fact, more and less good, more and less true, more and less noble. I'm going to be brief here, but what I want to focus in on is the way in which something can be more and less true, because, of course, this is the hinge point in part of the argument. Um, the fact that truth comes in, degree, in degrees allows Aquinas to make the move from truth to being. So, we want to so I'm going to focus on that particular aspect of this. And to get this notion of degrees of truth, St. Thomas is actually drawing upon Aristotle's metaphysics in support of this point. But here, it's not the quoted metaphysics uh, book two, but rather metaphysics book four, text three on your handout. And there, Aristotle writes that he who thinks that four is five is not equally as wrong as he who thinks that it is a thousand. And therefore, if they are not equally as wrong, obviously one is less wrong and so more right. Hence, if what is truer is nearer to what is true, there must be some truth to which the truer is nearer. End quote. So that's Aristotle. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, <clears throat> but I think that at least we can see one of the ways in which truth coming in degrees seems intuitively true. It does seem right that somebody who has gotten close to the number is probably more true than somebody who's just like implausibly far off, right? Now, there in, in previous versions of this talk, I've gotten an objection um, where people have said, well, wait a minute, degrees of more in truth, how is that even possible? Right? Aristotle and Aquinas hold to the principle of the excluded middle, which states that a premise is either true or false, and that there is no middle ground between truth and falsity. So it's an interesting objection, but it's actually relatively simple um, to put aside. And that's because the principle of the excluded middle applies to individual propositions. An individual proposition is either true or false. Full stop. There is no middle ground in that case. But the fourth way is not concerned about individual propositions being midway between truth and falsity. Rather, it is concerned with the truth and falsity of two or more propositions, two or more things even. And when we compare propositions, it turns out that they can be more and less true in comparison to some sort of standard without falling afoul of the principle of the excluded middle. And, you know, this can happen in a couple different ways, right? We can say that certain statements are more true than another because they express more reality than those statements. So, for instance, we could say the negative statement, the earth is not the center of the universe. And then we can say that the sun is the center of the solar system. And both true, yes, but 
the, but the second one, the fact that the sun is the center of the solar system, is in some ways more true because it's more informative. As, as a negative, the statement, the Earth is not the center of the universe, does tell us something true, but it doesn't tell us much. The sun, as the center of the solar system, does tell us something that's true. Um, and it tells us and it gives us more than the first statement. And so we can say that the second statement is, in fact, more true in a way than the first statement insofar as it gives us more information. There's another way in which a proposition can be truer um, than another, and that's also regarding how we achieve the knowledge, right? So this is similar to the example that Aristotle himself gives. So let's say you have two people, Joe and Tom, and they're taking a math test, or maybe I should say here a maths test, I guess. <laughs> We don't necessarily put a plural to it in the United States, but I'm going to try to enculturate here. So now suppose that Joe did not study and just make, made up some equations, right? He came to the test and he said, I don't really know what the right answer is, threw down some equations and then put down in the answer slot 42. Turns out that was correct. And now Tom, on the other hand, knew the proper steps, knew all the equations and correctly calculated the right answer, 42. Both Joe and Tom had the correct answer, but Joe's answer is less true in that, in the sense that he just made a lucky guess, right? He didn't know what he was doing. He just threw down a number, hoping that the answer to the life, the universe, and everything was correct. But Tom, because he knew the proper procedure, not only got the right answer, but knows why it's the right answer. And so in an important sense, Tom's knowledge is truer than Joe's knowledge because he attained the answer in a way that, that permits knowledge, whereas Joe just guessed and only found out later on that it was the right answer because he got a check on that particular one. Now in these ways, right, and probably in a couple others, but at least in these two ways, we can say that truth is obviously comes in degrees, that we can say that truth comes in degrees without violating the principle of the excluded middle. Therefore, that being the case, it seems pretty easy to see why premise two is also true. All right, so with that, we're gonna move to premise four. Because of course, three follows directly from one and two, so we just move to premise four. If there is something that is maximally true, then there is something that is maximally being. This is one of the two premises that are hard to swallow for contemporary philosophers, in which they begin to shake in their boots as I speak. Now, why, why does St. Thomas make such a connection between truth and being? Well, there are a couple of different routes to try to um, explain why St. Thomas thinks he's allowed to make this move. The standard way of justifying this move is by pointing at the doctrine of the transcendentals. So the idea behind this, behind the doctrine of the, of the transcendentals in medieval theory is that, you know, there are certain, that all the transcendentals, being, true, multiplicity, all them, right, are convertible, such that what, is, what we say about one can be said about the other. Now, of course, grounding premise four, the truth of premise four in the transcendentals is definitely not wrong, but I don't think it's really the best way to understand why premise four is true. Certainly it has to be the transcendentals are part of it, but it's not enough to really get at why Aquinas thinks he's permitted just 
to include this premise in his argument. So I think something else is going on here. After all, because what he says here is that um, as we go on, right, in premise six, he uses the notion of a genus and that the, that, there, that the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus. But a transcendental, qua transcendental, is called such because it transcends all genera. And so that can't be the full ex explanation for why he is allowed to use this premise. So what's going on here? I propose that we look at the text of the metaphysics that Aquinas himself cites, right? That seems to be the obvious move. And see if that, and we'll see if that helps us. So this is text four on your handout. Aristotle says the following, but we know a truth only by knowing its cause. Now, anything which is the basis of univocal predication about other things has that attribute in the highest degree. Thus, fire is hottest and is actually the cause of heat and other things. Therefore, that is also true in the highest degree, which is the cause of all subsequent things being true. For this reason, the principles of things that always exist must be true in the highest degree, because they are not sometimes true and sometimes not true. Nor is there any cause of their being, but they are the cause of being of other things. Therefore, insofar as each thing has being, to that extent, it is true." End quote. The key feature of the relationship between truth and being in this passage is that the way things exist causes our concepts of those things to be true or false. The causal character of the relationship here is key because the way things are causes our concepts not only to be, but to, tr but to be true. And what it means is that truth tracks being. So let's take an example. Say I have this idea. Socrates is sitting. This is true if and only if there is a man, Socrates, who is sitting at the time referred to by the statement and in the same respect as I am thinking about it. So the fact of Socrates' sitting makes my concept to be true. Well, let's look more closely at the example Aristotle gives and that St. Thomas uses in the fourth way, the example of fire. Now we should note that fire here is not the common fire that we all know and love, the fire of our hearths and the fire on the gas stove and the fire that you're not supposed to light in the library here in town. That fire is an element and it's an element that has a particular quality of heat. And Aristotle gives us, in the De Generatione et Corruptione, a definition of heat. Heat is what joins things together that are exactly the same. Cold joins things together, whatever they are. If you think I'm lying, I can give you a citation. That's, that, those, that is actually what Aristotle says. So that's not the heat right, of our everyday experience. But it's a very clearly a kind of extreme. Heat is the having of a particular property, only joining with things exactly like itself. And cold is the complete absence of that property, right? And so fire is something that has heat in the purest sense here. And so the reason why things are hot is because they have something like fire in them 
that gives them a, that that in some ways generates in them a, a degree of more or less heat, more or less attractiveness to things like themselves. Um, and so when we say that something is hot, right, we say that it has this property. Now we might say, well, how does this explain heat? Well, Aristotle says this explains what fire is, at least the everyday fire of the hearth, because normally fire burns things up and seems to separate stuff. But Aristotle says it separates things as a secondary effect, right? By joining only like things together, it ends up separating unlike things, right? And so it's a particular, so that's a particular property of it. So insofar as something is more likely to join others like itself and separate off things that are unlike themselves, to that degree, they have fire. Okay. And so we can then say that it's this notion of fire that then that allows us to say that something has heat in it, and that insofar as something has more or less fire, it is more or less hot. All right. Um, and that when we, when we say that something is hot, it is hot precisely because it has fire in it. And so when we say the statement, this thing is hot, right, and we notice that it has the element fire in it, then the element fire, the, the presence of the element fire in the thing itself allows the statement in our mind, fire, that this thing is hot to be true. So it's the presence of fire in the hot thing that allows for the statement, this thing is hot to be true, and therefore truth tracks being. Sorry, I got a little distracted on the element thing, and I need to bring this back to, to that. So that's where that's where I was bring why I was bringing up that particular argument. So then, with that, right? So the idea that truth tracks being. Okay, Aristotle then uses this and goes on in the metaphysics passage to say that if some object is caused to exist by something else, right? Then the existence of the thing that is dependent is less than the existence that than the thing that gives cause to the existence the more dependent one is on some superior being the less share you have in that being and the less dependent you are on a superior being the more share you have in in that being itself and so then there's the greater presence of being in the thing that then causes us to say truer that something is more true or, or less true, that the more something participates in being, so to speak, the more, the truer it is. So this is moving from a particular point about truth about individual things to the way in which things exist, the way they share in being, and that we can say that something is truer or less true based on even how much being it shares or how much independence it has. And so that even substances, Aristotle seems to indicate, have more or less being insofar as they are more or less in need of something else in order to come into existence or to stay in existence. So if truth depends on the existence of something and the existence of that thing depends on the existence of another thing that has more being than it, then the truth about the effect depends on the truth about the cause. And just as the cause is more being than the effect, so the truth of the cause is more true on Aristotle's account than the effect. 
And so Aristotle concludes, for this reason, the principles of things that always exist must be true in the highest degree, because they are not sometimes true and sometimes not true, nor is there any cause of their being, but they are the cause of the being of other things. This then points us back, of course, what we, when we see Aquinas importing this into the fourth way, this should immediately give us a, um, the idea that he is making an implicit reference to the first and the second way, even to the third way, really. And I think that that is intentional on St. Thomas's part. So I agree with Father Lawrence Dewan, who, uh, who says that the first four of the five ways are mutually are kind of moving along the same track so that the first way helps us to see the truth of the second way and the first and the second way help us to see the truth of the third way and the first the second and the third way help us to see the truth of the fifth way so that there's kind of a building on it that's why there are five ways to come to understand god but that there is also an interrelationship between them and so part of the truth of, of premise four is based upon the success of the previous four way of the previous three ways, excuse me. But anyway, the, to kind of conclude this particular section, the point I want to make now is that degrees of truth implies a degree, degrees of being. And so these degrees of being are related to degrees of causation or the lack of need of causation in some case. So in sum, we can say that the truth of premise four is not unrelated to the doctrine of the transcendentals, but it is more proximately justified by this Aristotelian metaphysics about causation and degrees of being and how truth tracks these degrees of being um, such that something that has more being is also more true. All right, moving on to the last premise we, we need to discuss, which is premise six where each maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus. Why, many, many, many of our contemporaries say, should we think that the maximum in a genus causes everything in the genus? So for instance, you know, when we think of, especially those of us who study a lot of scholastic thought, we think of genus and species, we'll think of something like, well, animal is the genus of human being, which is a rational animal. How is animal a cause of the rational animal human being? There are, there are a variety of creative ways to solve this particular issue, um, but I actually don't think that Aquinas is using genus in this sense. And so I'm not going to bother with those common approaches to trying to understand how a more universal genus can, call, can cause its, um, its species that, that fall under it. Because I think that the term genus here is being used to refer to not a more general feature as opposed to a less general feature, but rather to the origin of a class of things that fall between two different contraries. So this is going back to my discussion of premise one. Remember how I said that in contraries, there is the full having of a property and then the full absence of the property. You can't get this contrariety without the full having of the property. And so ultimately, the full having of the property is the cause not only of its absence, 
but of course, anything that comes in between. And because of the context of this particular argument, I think that this is what Aquinas means when he says that the maximum in any genus is the cause of everything within that genus. Now, that may be a little bit hard to swallow. So let's go back to the example of fire that Aquinas does bring up in this particular case, right? And remember that that use of fire in Aristotle's elemental theory, that fire is unqualifiedly hot. That is, it's unqualifiedly hot insofar as it only joins with things that are exactly like itself. And so when you have a mixed body that has both fire and water as elements, the heat um, that the heat or the warmth, we might say, that comes about in this mixed body is a qualification of the total having of attraction only to things like itself and the total privation of not being attracted only to things like itself, right? Because this, of course, that when you mix fire and water together, you get something that's warm, something that's less hot and less cold. And so it's a qualification of this. Now, the existence of the warm body is due to the existence of the fire, right? You can't get the warm body without having fire to, from which it can come. You can't also get the warm body without having water from which it comes, right? And so all of the intermediates come from a mixture of things that are related to the extreme. Remember how I said that when you move from one extreme to the other, right, the way you get an, an way you label something as an intermediate is that the intermediate is what one extreme has to change into before it gets to the other extreme. And so in a way, right, it is precisely the watering down of the extremes that causes the existence of any of the intermediates. And so if this theory is correct, then premise six follows just obviously from the theory that once we understand the context of this within the context of Aristotelian physics, then of course the maximum in any genus, that is the unqualified having of a particular form that generates a, a, a kind of spectrum of contrariety, just is a cause of every intermediate that comes in between. And so with that, then, of course, we've explained all of the premises that lead to our final conclusion, right? Because once we have premise six and we see it as true within this, within this Aristotelian framework, then it becomes obvious that there has to be a maximum being that is the cause of all beings. And as St. Thomas says, at this stage, that is all we need to know to identify that God exists. Now, of course... Um, much more of this needs to be kind of developed to made, be made a little bit more plausible uh, by, to contemporary audience by showing that Aristotelian physics is actually not all that contradictory to contemporary physics. This is the work of many of uh, American Dominicans and American Thomists that I can introduce you to at another point. But um, just to say that there are ways in which we can do this, which then would, of course, make this argument not only plausible, but in fact, we can see it as true. That's all I have for you this evening. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Father Ambrose, uh, for a very interesting talk. Uh, so questions now, please. Thank you, Dr. Um, I was just wondering, maybe I missed it. Um, 
in 64 months, okay? Uh, the idea in which in any in, there is like from the 63 months the conclusion that is like an analogy between the idea of maximum in genus and maximum in being, right? Yes. But uh, in insofar as it, so oh I I keep going. Let me Yeah. What what seems platonic to me is the idea that there is like it seems that genus is considered as a being, and this and this is not quite Aristotelian, right? So that's right. This, this was my question: is if there is like a platonic element here, or we can involve in some sense the idea, the implicit idea that the genus here is considered as a as a genus there, and yeah. being is considered as a genus that is like an ethical statement or a strict scientist. Indeed. No, and thank you for bringing up. That's a very good question. And I would say that genus here, of course, the maximum in any genus, right, is is saying that is whatever it is that is the top of the category, right? So you have each of the 10 categories, and those would be actually the maximum genus in that particular category. And this is where then the transcendentals kind of comes into play, right? That you can talk about a maximum being insofar as God is going to be whatever it is analogically related to the maximum substance, that sort of thing. Because, of course, each of the ten, each of the categories, two through ten, are dependent upon a substance. Um, and, then, and then this is where it goes back to the first and the second way, that, the, that, the, that um, dependent substances point to the existence of non-dependent substances, which then points to the existence of a primary cause. And so then that's why I was making the reference to the previous arguments. But do you see that? And, yeah, yeah. That, and that's how you can avoid making this too platonic. Thank you. Um, I was wondering how, in order to establish the first proposition, mm -hmm. um, or if it would be possible to demonstrate how being is one of those categories that necessitates having sort of two reference points, so ha having uh, having a, a total absence of being or nothingness, having sort of full being. Uh, because it seems to me that if we take something like, for example, uh, color mm. or whiteness, uh, it's something that is true of whiteness, mm -hmm. but it's something that, for example, not true of the contemporary understanding of temperature, right? You can, yeah. uh, temperature is only compared to a minimum and there is no real sort of maximum temperature that we compare temperatures with. So do you think it would be possible to demonstrate how being falls into the first category? Mm -hmm. Being is like color rather than temperature? Well, so yes. And so, but first I would resist the idea of thinking that temperature doesn't actually fall into this because even though we think of it as a minimum, right? Yeah. Uh, Kelvin zero is an absolute limiting point. Yes. And so that any sort of motion is considered faster or slower by reference to that complete stillness. And so that is a maximum stillness in a sense, even though we treat it as a maximum absence. Okay. So that's the kind of, that's the first point. The second point is that this whole theory about uh, chain between contraries of having and not having is at the center of Aristotelian theory of change. And so insofar as we are talking about changeable being, then using this notion of contrariety, of having, not having a property, is essential for getting the triangle in the Aristotelian idea of change, that you move from having a property to not having it, underlied by some sort of matter, either a substance or prime matter. 
Yes, it is contrary to certain trends. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of different Thomism out there. So the type of Thomists that are interested in this project in science tend to be what are referred to as, in some circles, river forest Thomism, in other circles as Aristotelian Thomists. And so we generally see, and I class myself among them, uh, we generally see tr that it's important for understanding St. Thomas and, and a lot of his thought to, to have a really deep understanding of Aristotle, even if there are some recognizing that they're going to be, there definitely are some Neoplatonic influences. But of course, as a scholar of ancient philosophy, I also tend to understand Platonism as an Aristotelian, Neoplatonism as an Aristotelianizing Platonism. And so uh, that, I mean, so it would be natural for an Aristotelian to take on certainly some features of that. Um, does that get at your question? Yeah. And then uh, as there are, and then, you know, part of our work with the Thomistic Institute, actually, we are, we have this project that we're, I'm announcing this a little bit early. We're not supposed to announce it until this weekend, but you're getting a head start. We're talking about a project called the Scientia Project which is a kind of interplay between science, faith, and philosophy. And we've already, we're already doing a lot of work with, with scientists, uh, trying to give them a better understanding of Aristotelian uh, philosophy and physics. They're helping us to understand science better. And we're working to kind of show how the, the kind of metaphysics and the physics of Aristotle don't contradict um, some of the findings. It's just that we need to have the models of science speak with um, kind of the metaphysics of, of Aristotelian science so that they can be clearer and help us to understand what the results of scientific investigation actually mean. Because it's often the interpretation of results within a certain model, that's where things seem to contradict. But if we can infuse those models with more philosophy and use then the results of those models to kind of help us perfect our philosophy, that's going to create a really good, and theology also. I'm a philosopher, so I tend to focus more on the philosophy. That's, um, I think that's, that's an important project, um, not only in, like for those of us in the Thomistic Institute, but I think really for the church as a whole. Well, no, I'm, I'm afraid not. <laughs> I will, I will start thinking about that. But I've been, I've been so focused on just doing the exegesis. I haven't, I haven't yet kind of moved to the stage where I'm going to export it to uh, non-Aristotelian Thomists yet. So, so unfortunately, I haven't gotten there. Oh, well, one more. Okay. So in the argument, 
backwards and incorporate something which is the maximum. Yeah. And then you talk about in your uh, interpretation there being some maximum degree. Mm -hmm. And I'm having trouble understanding like, where it comes from, leaving it from like things with your contacts and things which are. So it's a little bit like, like it's something with yeah. this maximum of contact or minus, but in a way you can kind of see that there might be a maximal degree of some covering in something. Mm -hmm. That's different from saying that there is something which is the maximum. Yeah. That makes sense. Yes. So that and, and that's that's a perfectly reasonable question. And part of the part of the hang up there is that um what you're referring to as concepts, Aquinas would refer to as beings, because of course there are many ways to be, right? All of the categories are ways of being. And so anything in any of the categories can be labeled a thing, right? Um, and so these concepts, we understand them as concepts, we identify them in the mind as concepts, but of course as Aristotelians, we'd say that those concepts don't have independent existence in some platonic realm of forms, but they exist in things. But that doesn't mean that they're not individualizable. So in categories book in Metaphysics book 10, Aristotle does a lot of work to show how the concept of existence is related to the concept of unity. So something can be one, not just as a numeric individual, but also one in form. And that this is still a thing. And so that this concept of heat, even if you can't like walk around and say, oh, I found it, I found the heat, it's right here, right? You can identify it as a real thing in other things. 